I would say we're living at a particular historical moment in which the stories that have served us in the past are no longer serving us. They're breaking down. And the people who are attached to those stories are freaking out because the stories are changing. And they're changing right in front of our eyes. And what the humanities could do if the culture embraced them sufficiently is help them to deal with the loss of the one story and the appearance of other stories and help us to choose which stories we want to live in and which stories we don't want to live in anymore. good day today. I'm excited about this conversation. This is Jeffrey Kripal, a friend and mentor and uh, one of my favorite authors. It's really fun that uh, I think Jeff actually said this about one of his mentors once that um, it's a fellow that'll actually return his phone calls. And Jeff's a guy who returns my phone calls. (laughs) So (laughs) uh, he's he's really helped me make sense of stuff that doesn't doesn't quite make sense today, but it makes a hell of a lot more sense than it used to. Um, as you, if you've been listening to the podcast at all, I, I uh, Jeff was responsible for writing a book I ended up teaching from. It's called Comparing Religions. And uh, it, it really helped me develop a language to be able to begin to interrogate some of these ideas, these stories that that human beings have 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 used have been have been born in the kind of collective psyche of human beings in order to understand mysteries of living um, or the the mystery of living and reality and he's been at the forefront of of trying to understand themes and aspects of those stories throughout our uh, our human history so he and he's a all-around fantastic person. Um, I want to introduce you to... Uh, the other thing I need to say is that if you have not listened to episode one, then uh, then please do. It's uh, it, it was my first episode, obviously, on the podcast, and um, I wanted Jeff to be the participant, given that um, he's been so important in, in my own kind of thinking. and um, Yeah. So I want to uh, today. Today's really exciting because Jeff's book, if it if it was published on time, was published yesterday, March twelfth, and uh, that means that uh, I got this uncorrected proof, and then I wrote all over it, as you'll hear. But uh, I'm excited. I, I did. <laughs> it's a, it's a good book. It's called The Flip, and we'll get into it. We talk a lot about it, uh, but what I'll I'll read is uh, just a bit from the back cover. 
A flip, writes Jeffrey J. Kripal, is a reversal of perspective, a new real, often born of an extreme life-changing experience. The flip is Kripal's ambitious, visionary program for unifying the sciences and the humanities to expand our minds, open our hearts, and negotiate a peaceful resolution to the culture wars. Combining accounts of rationalist spiritual awakenings and consciousness exploration by philosophers, neuroscientists, and mystics within a framework of the history of science and religion, Kripal compellingly signals a path to mending our fractured world. Jeff Kripal holds the J. Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University and is the Associate Director of the Center for Theory and Research at Esland Institute in Big Sur, California. He's previously taught at Harvard Divinity School and Westminster College and is the author of eight books, including The Flip. For more information, visit www.kripal.rice.edu. And another site that uh, I want to direct you to is uh, jeffreyjkripal.com, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-J-K-R-I-P-A-L.com. Check his stuff out. You won't be disappointed. And I want you to imagine for a second the stories, maybe it's one story, but the story of your life that you've never told anybody. I mean, maybe you've told a, a person or two, but, um, but, but that story that you've never really divulged to anybody. Maybe it's about a thought that you've had that you couldn't believe or an experience that you've had that you'd rather not share. And maybe it's about something that's kind of wildly weird um, that happened to you that you feel you, you couldn't talk about um, because you'd fear getting rejected or ridiculed. Because uh, those are important for human beings who really need to belong. We need to be a part of a group. And if we believe that our experiences are, or our personalities or aspects of ourselves are not going to be accepted by a person or a group, we keep it to ourselves. Well, Jeff has been a receiver of many of these stories for a long time. And I think, I, I note this in the conversation coming up, but I think one of the reasons is because people learn that he has been hearing these stories, and he doesn't judge, or he doesn't ridicule, and in fact, he has a, a, a pool of resources to lean on that uh, can really validate some of these perspectives and experiences, because quite frankly, some really wacky shit happens out there. Um, I, I know enough about this as a psychotherapist, but <laughs> you know, things can get weird. So uh, I'm excited to, to talk to Jeff today, and I'm, I'm glad that he... Thanks, Jeff, for, for always being so generous with your time. Uh, if you want any information on the podcast, listen to earlier ones. I, I did a, a lot of explaining. Um, I think it was really also me explaining to myself what in the world I'm doing here. Um, the, the, a couple things to note are the band today that I'm using, band of the day, is Chomsky, some, some guys I used to play with back in the early 2000s. And the first step of the first song you heard was a portion of Gravitate from their record Onward Quirky Soldiers. And at the end of the episode, I play the full selection of two steps from a few possible selections for the soundtrack of your life. It's a good album. And I, I, I included a link in the liner notes of this uh, podcast for all uh, social media, uh, but certainly the bands. The theme song of, the, of this podcast is from the band Modern Nations, 
You can get them at modernnationsmusic.com. And the song I use is Clouds. Uh, but they've got a ton of great stuff. And uh, that's Nolan and Toby, two friends of mine. And um, they just created a cool management program called Liminal, uh, along with a couple other guys I've done a lot of recording with. And uh, I'm excited for them. So check out Liminal Management uh, with uh, Todd Pipes, Toby Pipes, Taylor Tatch, and Nolan Tees. Um, I think that's it. So without further ado, I will, uh, I will, is that it? I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. So uh, I'll just bring you the conversation. Thanks for listening. And um, <laughs> thanks for listening. We'll leave it there. Great. So again, man, thank you for um, arranging the time. We're here on a cold day in Houston at your office. And I... Uh, I just like being surrounded by all these books. <laughs> They're friendly. They're they, <laughs> they are They're get a warm friendly. sense of uh, of love and uh, inferiority. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. There's just there's lots of people in the world. Who yeah, thought a lot of things. I know. I, I you and I talked about this once. The, the amount of books that I buy is kind of a. It's quite a, a chunk. Yeah. Of course, I'm sitting next to this thing. You just get sent books. This is great. My uh, my graduate students are they're all talking about a book called How to Talk About Books You Haven't Read. <laughs> it's a book. There's a book for that. And I, I always <laughs> say, you know, I haven't read that book, uh, but it's actually it's a very philosophical book, and you know, it it raises some really interesting questions. Like, what does it mean exactly to read a book? Do you have well? Do you have to read every word? Do you have to read the end notes? You know, because if you think about it. You read a book, a few days later, you you probably took away, right? What two pages of ideas, maybe? So what what does it really mean? You know, can you can you read a book, you know, and and just read a chapter of it? I I mean, it's a real question. Yeah, you know. So I it's got me thinking too. I mean, about why I I love books, most of which, of course, I haven't read through and never will, but they're still important. Yeah. I know what's in them, you know? I need to do that more because I must treat myself like, uh, I must be a real big asshole to myself because I have this. You have you know, to you, read every I word. have to, yeah, it's like. Uh, and of course there are books you do have to read every word. There, there are books that you really do need to read through, but I think most books you can get really what the book is saying in, you know, actually a few minutes. And uh, and you can spend a couple hours or a couple days or a couple weeks with it, but it's it's just layering, you know. Well, thanks, because uh, I th I think if you looked on my bookshelf, even with that previous comment, my my younger self has a lot of bookmarks about, <laughs> about halfway, yeah. a quarter through. You know? Yeah, I'd say you read those books. Yeah. <laughs> well, philosophically, I'll I'll take that. Yeah. So I read your book. Did you? Uh, I did. I read it all, cover to cover. And see, what I do is I, um, I read it, I read it, and then outline, and I, you know, squiggle my notes in the margins, and um, and then I, I take notes, not copious notes, but just little reminders, and then I go back through all those and kind of think about the thread throughout the book, because I think I'm kind of extracting the, you know, the main overview points. I just feel. 
I feel like this project has really kind of held me to that. It's almost an accountability holder. Like, yeah. You know, you gotta, you're going to talk to folks, and then you got to... That's different, of course. It if is you're different. talking to the author, you can't get away with very much. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you can't say, ah, uh, yeah. Although I have, I, I've, I've been honest with a couple of folks, right? I didn't make it all the way through the books. You know, it's great when you are reading a, a, a 300-page book, not when you're reading a 650-page book. You know, right. it's a different, different setup. Right. Uh, well, I'm having... Um, you know, some nostalgia sitting back here. You and I chatted the first, my, this was my first conversation on this project. Wow. It's been a year and a half. Wow. And uh, a lot's changed, man. It's like uh, this, I, th I think th this episode will be episode 39. Okay. And so it's it's been wow. coming along from, That's great. from number one to 39. But, you know, considering that you've been so wonderful to me and kind of, pointing me in directions and helping me uh, think through some of my thoughts and certainly point me in directions of people who can do that. Um, I was eager and anticipating this book coming out. It, it you know, for whatever reason, the, the subject matter fit perfectly in not only where I've, where my thoughts have been, but also just worked. I was talking to John Horgan two weeks ago. We were all over the his book, The End of Science and the Mind-Body Problems. And then so to get into this seems really appropriate. And yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I've read almost all your books, cover to cover. <laughs> <laughs> or so you claim. Or so, yeah, so I say. <laughs> um, but thank you. Yeah, yeah, a lot. No, my pleasure, John. So give give some overview. I want to know the I want to know the juice, you know, on um, on how you're thinking kind of gave way to this particular book, how, how this commentary emerged out of the, you know, what is this, your eighth, eighth book? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so this is the first uh, monograph or the single authored book I've ever written for someone else. I The, this, the previous seven books that all, I did all with the University of Chicago Press were all really f either things I were I was passionate about or that my editors at Chicago wanted me to write about and that all made sense as a kind of whole but this book has its own life and its own story and it starts out in uh, 2014 um, when I published a little manifesto in the Chronicle of Higher Education called Visions of the Impossible and the Chronicle of Higher Education for the listeners who aren't aware is essentially the New York Times of the higher high, higher education world. Mm -hmm. It's what deans and provosts and administrators, but also professors and teachers of all sorts read. It's sort of our professional newspaper. And it's a great place to put pieces where you're trying to reimagine higher education. Um, and so I, I wrote this piece in 2014 called Visions of the Impossible, which became Chapter 1 of the book and um it got a lot of uh, a lot of response actually uh, both really positive and and quite angry um but one of the responses was from an editor named Erica Goldman at Bellevue Literary Press who contacted my literary agent and said hey wow I'd really like Jeff to think about turning this essay into a book for us and so my agent got a hold of me and and basically said, Jeff, I actually think you should do this. This is a really fine little press. They won the Pulitzer last year. And um, I think you should try this. So 
I did. I called Erica, or Erica called me, I forget which, and we had a really a wonderful conversation. And essentially what Erica said to me was that she considers herself very skeptical about the sorts of things I was writing about, but there was nothing in the essay she could disagree with. And she just found that really striking. And I think what she was trying to say, or what she was saying, was that there are ways to talk about these things that are quite rigorous and quite um, attractive to people, and that we don't need to be ashamed or embarrassed. There's, there's, there's better ways of talking about extraordinary experience than we normally get. And she saw that in the piece, and and she asked me to to essentially um, blow it up into a book. And I agreed, and it took me way longer than I promised her because I kept getting sidetracked with other projects, you know. And she, Erica kept gently, you know, nudging me along. And finally I finished it for actually last spring. Um, and I guess the, thing, the other thing that's interesting about the book is the press. The press is what's interesting, actually. Bellevue Literary Press is a press founded in Bellevue Hospital in New York City was founded by a medical doctor who was really concerned about how people in the humanities and people in the sciences were drifting apart. And there was a kind of two cultures that were developing in the country, two intellectual cultures that really couldn't talk to one another. And he wanted to found a press in which the sciences and the humanities could talk to, talk to each other about anything. And so this is really the spirit of the press, and it's really the spirit of the book. The whole book is about that, really. It's, it's why the sciences really need the humanities and why the humanities need the sciences, but how that actually, that conversation can lead in directions that neither the humanities nor the sciences are really comfortable with yet. You know, it's not like you take a little humanities and you take a little science and you put them together and you have scientific humanities or you have humanistic sciences. No, that it doesn't work like that. It, it, it pushes us towards some kind of future form of knowledge that really doesn't sit comfortably anywhere at the moment. And uh, that's really what the book's about, is, is what I call the future, future form of knowledge. So I have to revert back to my younger self and... Uh... You know, so let's define, right? Um, what's the purpose of the humanities? What's the purpose of the sciences? What's the history of this kind of education? And uh, yeah. let's dive in after that. Yeah, so I mean, this is where I always get into trouble. <laughs> um, because I think to, to answer that question, you have to speak in generalities and you have to like say things that of course can be nuanced, right? And qualified. Um, so what I like to say, again, that always gets me to trouble, <laughs> Uh, is that essentially the sciences think that the world is made of numbers and the humanities think that the world is made of words. Well, so what's the, um, what, what are you getting in trouble for on that? Well, it's too simplistic, sure. you know, but it, I think it gets us somewhere. I mean, the humanities really do think everything works like a language or a text. And the sciences really do think that deep down everything works mathematically, you know, machine-like, or 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 pre it's predictable, it's mathemat, it's quantifiable. And the other way I talk about these these two ways of knowing the world is that the humanities the humanities turn everything into an object, and they want 
to study objects in three-dimensional space, and they want to predict them, and they want to quantify them, and they want to manipulate them to see how they work. You mean the sciences? The sciences. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the humanities really um, is not about this so-called objectivity. It's about subjectivity. It's, mm -hmm. about, it's about states of mind and how they express themselves in things like art and religious experience and literature and political systems and social institutions and history. And so I think those are, those are really, those are generalizations, but I think they generally work quite well. Um, we're really about the study of objects and the sciences, and we're really about the study of subjects in the humanities. And I, I think the reason that the, the sciences have been so successful is because if you lop off subjectivity, you can actually study the world as a collection of objects and do all sorts of extraordinary things. You can make cool things, like cell phones or the microphones we're talking about. You can't do any of that when you're studying subjectivity. But if you're in the sciences, you also can't talk about things like meaning and uh, why we're here or what, what, a, what a human person is. You actually can't even talk about what matter is, which is something I learned from my physicist friends that was quite striking to me, that the sciences, well, physics in particular, can tell us all sorts of things about the structure of matter or the behavior of matter, but it tells us absolutely nothing about what matter is. And, uh, and that, that sort of ontological question, you know, is, is exactly what gets lopped off mm -hmm. early in the history of science. And it's why science proceeds the way it proceeds so successfully, but it's kind of coming back now. It's kind of returning to us. And, and uh, a lot of people in the scientific community, particularly the people who are studying uh, neuroscience or physics, are really beginning to ask this, essentially this philosophical question, and that's taking them back to the humanities in some basic sense. Um, and that's kind of what the book is about. That's what I call the flip, is when you know, a scientist or a medical professional who's really trained to be some kind of um, really convicted or convinced materialist has some extraordinary experience and realizes that actually that materialism was always just an interpretation of the science or the medicine. It was never inherent or necessary in the first place. So materialism being that the world is made up of objects. In three-dimensional space. Right. It's all matter. There's mm -hmm. nothing else. That That's the core metaphysical commitment of, of I think, most, uh, most contemporary um, scientists. I'm, I'm thinking about setting up the conversation because I, I, th I think materialism, idealism, and duality may be a way for us to go. I'm, I also wonder if we can tend to that, um, some of this, the educational system, you know, the way that education, and maybe that, um, so, and I don't even know the question other than what is the history of higher education and how did it get so separated off into those trenches that are creating this current warfare? Yeah. Well, I don't, first of all, I don't think it's a warfare. I, I don't feel at war with my colleagues in the sciences and I don't, I don't think they feel at war with people in the humanities. I, I think where there's tension is simply in the young people who are choosing to go to college these days to study 
really just the STEM fields, and and that people are not as interested in the humanities, and so they're naturally um, experiencing a kind of defunding and a kind of disinterest from the broader culture. I don't, I don't think it's the academics per se that are doing this. I think this is a broader cultural issue. Um, but these conversations get pretty charged. Um, well, certainly not. I mean, where, though? Where are they charged? I don't know. Maybe more in popular culture. You know, when you hear this, you're hearing the refrain of, you know, the humanities are you know, changing every everybody's ideology. It's really uprooting some long-held belief systems. I see. You know, I see. Yeah, so in that sense, there is a... So that's another issue. There's a kind of, there's a kind of anti-intellectual, anti-humanities ideology in the public culture, driven by right-wing politics and conservative, kind of the conservative movement, because the humanities historically have been destabilizing to any kind of conservative worldview. I think that's essentially true. Not not every intellectual is liberal in the political sense. But I think we don't call these the liberal arts for nothing. Right. I, I think they do tend very strongly towards a kind of liberalism or liberal worldview. And by that, I simply mean a worldview that is deeply suspicious of any kind of certainty. And, and that's precisely what you need in a, in a right-wing or conservative political platform. You need certainty. You need, you need to conserve particular values and particular social structures. That's what it, conservatism is at the end of the day. And what liberalism is at the end of the day is questioning those same values and those same social structures, not just for the heck of it, but because those social structures and values are hurting people. They're marginalizing certain kinds of people. They're defining certain people as human and certain other people as non-human or subhuman. So in fields like history and, and the study of religion and, and, and English literature, we're deeply suspicious of any kind of um, claim that essentially classifies human beings as, as less. You know, racism, uh, gender, um, sexuality. These are all things that historically have been used to dismiss and marginalize whole groups of people. And, and a, lot of, a lot of the humanities is about uncovering those, those structures and questioning them. This is what I call in the book the prophetic function of the humanities. What well, scares people? Yeah. Well, I understand that. Mm. It, it is a challenge to one's worldview. But the question is, whom does it scare? You know, well, it scares those people in power. It scares the people who are benefiting from the way the social structures are set up at the moment. Oh, I, I, the only thing I'd add on to that is that, I mean, it, it, it scares the kind of social ego, the sovereignty of the social ego, you know, that yeah. people come into the therapist's office all the time around questions like what does it mean to be a man or a woman or a you know, particular race or religion when they're having thoughts that are contrary or behaviors that are contrary to that. And right. it, it creates enormous conflict in front of people. So on the macro level, we're seeing, right. I mean, obviously from political to social to you know, ideologically in the therapist's office when a 
couple is fighting or uh, friends are having conflict or an individual's questioning why in the world they found this person attractive and not that person and yeah so on and so forth you know it's yeah it's it, this is a i don't know i just think on the macro level we're seeing this but this is a this articulates a pretty personal i think yeah i i would put it this way john i would say we're living at a particular historical moment in which the stories that have served us in the past are no longer serving us. They're breaking down. And the people who are attached to those stories are freaking out because the stories are changing. And they're changing right in front of our eyes. And what the humanities could do if the culture embraced them sufficiently is help them to deal with the loss of the one story and the appearance of other stories and help us to choose which stories we want to live in and which stories we don't want to live in anymore. Um, I think that's, that, that would be the ultimate sort of power of the humanities. If, if in fact it were, it, they were actively activated in a, in a sufficient way. But of course what happens is people get afraid they get scared and they, they push back. Um, but again, young people generally don't. Mm-hmm. Young people generally find these kinds of uh, disciplines and these ways of thinking really liberating and exciting because they're not yet bound to a particular value system or worldview. In fact, many young people are just coming out of their own cultures and their own families, and they're struggling with what works and what doesn't work. Because no culture... No culture works for everyone. So there, no matter what culture you grew up in or what family you grew up in, some people in that culture or family will have no trouble adjusting to it, and some people in that family or culture will never adjust to it because people are different for whatever reason. We don't really understand why, but people are fundamentally different. And that difference is what we look at in the humanities and we try to affirm and we try to understand. And that's a different project. That is not a scientific project. Right. (laughs) That's a moral project. Yeah. It's a cultural project. It's a political project. But it is definitively not a scientific project. Yeah. I mean, that's the uh, speaking of challenging narratives and worldviews. I mean, you bring that to a scientist and that's a again, this is completely simplistic but there's no way to measure that or uh, that's no no it's a silly question isn't it right yeah but remember the scientist too is at the end of the day a human being you know he or she goes home and is a human being and not a scientist and there is no science without subjectivity there is no science without human beings so Really, all science can be traced back to human beings. And the study of human beings is ultimately what all of this, I think, comes back to. But you can't really think or understand human beings without taking into account subjectivity and values and morals and um, you know, where, where we think we're going. What, why are we here? What are we doing here? You know, this is where the story comes in. I just... Uh, my feeling there is I talked to this anthropologist once who was at the Museum of Science in Houston and he was saying that he went to study Maya Mayan culture because 
everybody had been studying Egypt. And he said, you know, you can't, you, you have to go in and get something so minute and small in, in Egypt because everything's been so studied. You know, he went over to the other side of things. He said, you can really wrap your arms around that. <laughs> that came to mind because you know, I'm having, I have trouble wrapping my arms around. It's almost like you have different modes of thinking. And well, the, you do. Yeah. And so of course you're, you're you do. just flipping back and forth and yeah. it's very hard to grasp. Yeah. Which. And see, you can't really grasp what the humanities are about because you're it. Yeah. The humanities are us studying us. We don't have there, 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 this whole notion of the hard <laughs> sciences is 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 silly. The sciences are easy. You know, you can study hard stuff out there in three dimensional space and manipulate it and control it and change it and predict it and and make cool stuff. You can't do any of that when you study yourself. You are caught in the process of studying. <laughs> consciousness reflecting on consciousness, becoming yeah. conscious. I mean, the, one of the things I like to say is that the humanities are the study of us that changes us. Yeah. It's, it's not objective. It's not neutral. It's a transformative process that you can't escape other than, of course, denying it and making fun of it and condemning it and defunding it, I suppose you can do all those things mm -hmm. and go pretend that everything's simple and certain, but none of it is. That's all nonsense at the end of the day. There's nothing certain. <laughs> if, I, if I didn't know any better, I'd, I'd use this as an example. I'd, I'd point at this table and say, Jeff, no, this table is certain. It's right here. This table, <laughs> this table, you can see it as well as I, is a human artifact. Yeah. It's shaped in a certain way. It's polished in a certain way. We are sitting, we're using it in a particular way. There is nothing non-human about this table. It's, it's us, again. It's a tool. Yeah, we are um, culture creating, you know, I mean. Well, it's like, you know, image that's often used, John, is we're like, we're spiders spinning the web that we then sit on and live on. And again, you can't get out of that. The spider cannot get off the web. Uh, it'll just make another web. Well, I know that my um, I've become more comfortable with ambiguity because my I, I, I tell my wife sometimes, I'm like, oh, this book is blowing my mind. I'm so like, whoa. And she's like, you say that about everything. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but it's honest. I'm not, yeah. I'm not. I'm, I'm, it's truthful. Like, these. But see, that, that rush you're describing is precisely the rush that I hear from young people studying the humanities. Yeah. They're like, this stuff's blowing my mind. Oh, my God. It's amazing. And, <laughs> and what they mean, so, so there's one kind of mind or one kind of person that loves their worldview exploded, right? It's exhilarating. It's liberating because then new things are possible. Yeah. You can create a new world. But there's another kind of personality that is terrified by that same exact process. And that's I think what distinct what creates this this goal for this 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 cultural abyss that we're seeing in our culture now. It's partly it's 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 between these two orientations. Um, it's not that simple, of course. Um, because there is 
I don't think it's just a matter of orientation or, or, or intellect or who's smart and who's not, because I think it's really a matter of where education is available and when it's where it's not. You know, there are, there are really serious economic and social issues here. Because I think you can take anybody, any population of people from any part of this country or any other country and put them in a really fine higher education system and they will start talking like me eventually. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think I'm any smarter than anybody else. I just think I had the luck and good fortune of receiving a really fine education. Um, so, I, you know, my mom often makes comments about how smart I am and how she's not smart. And I'm like, Mom, it's, it's really not true. Uh, you're as smart as I am and I'm as smart as you are. You, you just stopped at high school and you told me to keep going. So I kept going. <laughs> it's, it's, it's education that changes us, that fundamentally changes how people exist in the world. And, and it's not just a matter of filling up a bucket with more and more data yeah. or more and more knowledge. It's about fundamentally changing who a person is and how she or he imagines and thinks and values and acts and feels and desires. It's, it's, it's fundamental. Um, That's been the, the, the process of, you know, academic doctoral process, this podcast. I've seen that. I mean, cause I, even from our first, one of our first conversations where I was like, I don't have this language. And you, you know, we talked about your book and I started to get a language and then all of a sudden, I, that's just a new frame for me. And yeah. I, I, it's second nature at this point. I, I'm almost blown away by the time where I was like sitting with you guys and you were talking to each other and I was like, what the hell does that mean? Like, <laughs> holy shit, I am way out of my depth here. Like they're, they're, but again, it's a languaging system. Yeah, and that anyone can learn. I had the, the concepts, you know, the, I've, been, I've been thinking about these things for a long time and really just not... I've never had the home base, you know. Right. And that system has been very helpful to me to to give me a ground to begin to converse and what, think in this way. When I walk into a classroom with, you know, a hundred eighteen and nineteen year olds in the room, most of whom, by the way, are in STEM fields, mm -hmm. I say to them, "I am not here to answer your questions." Uh, I'm here to give you a language and a framework so that you can ask your own questions better. And what I find over and over again is that those young people have already asked all the questions. They just don't know how to ask them. The questions are in them, but they don't have a language or a framework to even articulate what the questions even are. And when you show them how other people have thought about these things or talked about them, they're like, wow, that's, that's me. You know, that's, that's what I'm thinking. You know, that's, that's what I'm asking. I'm like, yeah, I know. It's just, you just, you just didn't have the language. But that, and that, and that's your whole thing, you know? I mean, I think that if, if I were, this, this book, The Flip, feels like that to me, where you're saying people are really anxious because they don't have a worldview or a lens, or certain they're going to be judged for it, or they're going to be ridiculed for it, or you know, we kind of ridicule what seems uncomfortable to us and what's foreign to us. And if we have these experiences and we have no framework for it, we just 
it goes under the carpet, you know, right. like we never say anything about it. It just feels crazy. You've been at the forefront of it. And be, because of, it's almost like when you talk to somebody who's investigated sexuality, people just are a therapist, right? People just open up. You know, I, I have to choose a lot of times who, who I'm going to tell I'm a therapist to because at a dinner party, I'll be looked at like a psychic, you know? Yeah. I'm, you know, evaluating everybody. I'm like, I'm just trying to hang out, man. But for you, I can just, I can only imagine you must attract people's stories uh-huh. that they feel they can't share anywhere else. Yeah, that ha- that happens certainly every week, sometimes every day. Yeah. And all it is, John, again, it's not a matter of me somehow being special or smart. It's just I insist on talking about these things in public mm-hmm. constantly. And so people feel safe. Yeah. They're like, oh, he'll, he'll listen. He won't call me a nut, you know. And, you know, they're right about that because I actually don't think they're nuts or crazy. I actually think those are real human capacities that we've just repressed you know, to the cows come home, you know, in, in, in our modern um, culture and that it's time to stop doing that, you know. And I think once we stop doing that, these stories will just, they'll, they'll be everywhere. They're already everywhere. We're just, we just, we're just faking it. We're just pretending, you know, they're not everywhere. Yeah, I mean, what, so let's, these stories. Yeah. What do you mean? Well, okay, so today I had this gentleman tell me about this mind-blowing enlightenment experience he had decades ago after having sex for two or three hours. Mm. It's, just, it's just spontaneous enlightenment experience during and around sexual arousal. Okay? It totally changed his life forever. Okay? All right, well, that that's not supposed to happen on all kinds of levels, right? Sexuality is supposed to be over here. Spirituality is supposed to be over here. They're two different things. People can't get enlightened, et cetera, et cetera. But it happens all the time. People have transcendent experiences all the time during sexual experience, okay? Or someone tells me, you know, um, about an, a precognitive experience they had. They knew, they, they, they knew what was going to happen the next day in great detail. Um, and sure enough, it played out in great detail like that. Okay, that person would not tell me that story if I hadn't written about that. Yeah, you know, and on and on and on and on it goes. You know, um, so I just think I just and this is what again what I mean by the humanities isn't studying boring dead white guys. It's studying that. It's human beings are we're mutants. We're like we're like these marvelous, <laughs> fantastic creatures. Yeah that are having these impossible experiences all the time. We have capacities we haven't even we haven't even thought of yet. And and that's what that's why I think the humanities are so so exciting and so so important is because it just cracks open that that vista or that horizon. But you have to listen, you have to stop condemning and repressing and you have to make those experiences an integral part of whatever it is you're studying or whatever it is you're trying to understand. You can't make them tangential or just crazy woo-woo. you got to stop using the word woo-woo, by the way, because <laughs> that's, that's just another snarky yeah. way to dismiss people. 
it makes me think about my, my friend James, whom I interviewed. He's a priest. Um, I interviewed him a long time ago on this project. And um, I, I told him how I've always been envious of his work as a priest because he knows every week he's going to go to the pulpit and he's going to speak about something that's meaningful to him. If he doesn't, then it's shit. You know, it's just kind of sawdust. So the way he pays attention to his life is open and curious. And he can, there, there's meaning that is connected with in these really mundane moments. And I, that's what occurred to me is the, the essence of curiosity and wonder being at the forefront of your experience where, you know, sitting at a park bench can be a, a wonderful experience of seeing how humans interact. Uh, or it can be like, shit, I'm late for the bus, you know. And we, so we, we can just transform these experiences pretty quickly. And if the, yeah. the, frame of it, the frame of our experience changes, and then I think our biology answers that. It changes too, you know, when, yeah. we, when we have a different framework. Which is what uh, earlier I thought about uh, Dan Siegel's book, Brainstorm. It was the, um, a neuroscientist who was investigating adolescence. And uh, apparently what he's saying is that the, the, the brain during that stage of development is just a lightning bolt way more neuronal connections than you our our brains have at this point you know and so <laughs> that, that makes total sense yeah. <laughs> well you look at these kids and you're like holy shit how are you doing all this stuff you know you're playing two instruments you got a, a, a significant other uh, every other week you've got you know six extracurriculars you're like learning all these different class it's fantastic and you know parents are just like on kids all the time and they forget like hey man if you tried to do that by the way you get your ass kicked you know because they, they have a lot more heart artillery than we do at that age but there, so there's something about that that movement to expand and be curious about more and you get to do that all the time yeah <laughs> i do actually <laughs> it's wonderful and you know i also work with young people yeah. who who you know it sounds trite but they keep you young they they they're changing the, the worldview of the young people we work with today is fundamentally not the worldview of the young people I worked with in the early 90s, you know. Um, and so you, you get a kind of window into how the culture is changing, regardless of what anybody says or what, how anybody votes. The world is changing, and you can see it very clearly by just listening to young people. Thanks for that. It's like a... Uh, a, a voice of hope in the chaos, you know, that yeah. we hear about all the time. But you are you're at the you're at the front lines of yeah. of that cultural awareness. Uh, so uh, okay, um, let's kind of get into some of the material about this. Okay, sure. Um, so what we uh, I alluded to earlier was the idea that you you have been this individual who's an open heart that can hear people's stories. Because they would they would otherwise be ridiculed, and every time I read one of your books, I think about these references that you make to folks who say like, "I held on to this for twenty years. Or, I didn't. I would never say anything like this. Or, I, I waited until a, my spouse died, you know, because he or she asked me not to say something." So we may have covered this, but can you say a bit more about some of the pressure from the culture? Why that pressure exists to keep quiet? Well, so I think there's a couple reasons. You know, there's this wonderful story in the book. It's wonderful not because it's in the book, but because it's just <laughs> it's just a wonderful story, actually. Bruce Grayson tells it, actually. Bruce is a psychiatrist at the University of Virginia, uh, at the medical school there. Just retired, actually. 
And he tells this wonderful story of this, I forget if it was a male, or, I forget who started, but it was, it was a, I think it was a male doctor who had had this really eye-opening near-death experience and had was really in the midst of changing his worldview around this experience. But he, he was too ashamed of it to tell his wife, who was also a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're all three in a room together, and, in, and Bruce helps the, the doctor explain this experience to his, his spouse. And um, <laughs> the wife says, well, I had one of those experiences too, and I was too ashamed to tell you. You know, so here are these two people who've lived their whole lives together, both trained medical professionals who know that something like a near-death experience must just be fantasy or the brain dying, you know? Uh, that's what they think. Neither of them really think that, but they hold to the the culture and to the professional training with their spouse their, for their whole lives until the other one breaks the code, mm-hmm. and and then boom, there you are, both two experiences in the same room, um, really pointing in the same direction. So the, this the, these social pressures are so strong, particularly in the sciences, and the medical profession, or the medical professions, because again, the model really is that we're just matter. We're we're a, a really sophisticated biological machine and when we die absolutely nothing happens we just go out like a a light turning a light bulb off and there is no the the person ends at the skin there is no way to to see what's happening at a distance there is no way to know what's going to happen tomorrow before it happens there there is nothing like a soul or a spirit all of that is is hocus pocus from our our superstitious past, and it's time to leave that all behind. I mean, that really is the reigning worldview in which uh, um, scientists and medical professionals are trained. Well, I mean, isn't that because people can bullshit you? They can just, I mean, because we have this. Of course need, they can. We need to prove it and then be able to communicate the proof. None of these experiences are provable. This is this is the real issue. You can't prove that we survive bodily death. You can't get that in a laboratory. You know, you can you can collect thousands and thousands of case studies that so strongly suggest that, but you can't actually kill people in a laboratory and and then somehow access their subjective state after death and establish there's an afterlife or there's nothing at all. That is not a scientific procedure. That is not even amenable to the scientific method. And the mistake I think we make in the culture is that we assume that if something is not amenable to the scientific method, it is not real. It is not true. That doesn't follow at all. That's a, it's a complete leap there. And yes, we can be bullshitted. Yes, we, there are frauds. Yes, there are, you know, uh, misremembered events. Yes, things are hoaxed. All of that is true, but so what? I mean, scientific experiments are hoaxed. Scientific experiments are <laughs> faked. The placebo is a fake, and it freaking works. Right. You know, thirty <laughs> percent of the time. So this whole notion that because you can fake it, it's not—it's just complete nonsense. Mm-hmm. It's just not true. And so I just, 
I don't understand why we use these. They're 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 almost stupid. These little knee jerk reactions, like you know, it can be hoaxed, therefore it's always hoaxed. That's nonsense. You know, it's nonsense. Um, or that's just anecdotal. What? <laughs> uh, what does that even mean? I know what it means. It means you can't repeat it in a laboratory. So what? Yeah. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. So why why do we let people get away with these little quirky little sayings that actually mean nothing? I I I, I don't get it. I think it scares people. Like if we all of a sudden start opening to these unverifiable facts, we will live in a different world. Holy shit, we're crazy! <laughs> like no, no, we'll, we will be in a fundamentally different world. Yeah, yeah, and that's scary. Uh, why? It, to me, it's exciting. Why is it scary? I mean, I don't think it's really scary to you, John. I don't think it's scary. No, I, no, I don't. I think, think you're excited by it too. <laughs> but so again, I mean, this gets back to our earlier conversation. Why do these things fundamentally scare some people and liberate and um, free others? It's the same. It's the same thing. It's the same process. Yeah. But. Yeah, I, to me, that's the real question, is why people are, are, are different in that particular way. It's a, Jonathan Haidt said something about in, um, what was it, The Righteous Mind. Uh -huh. He was speaking about typology. Young was trying to get at this, too. You know, typology yeah. being at the root of liberal and conservatism. And, yeah. You know, there, there's certainly something to that, our, our, our unique nature, and then we have these certain kind of set ways of experiencing the world and kind of taking in our reality. Yeah. Um, biases, basically. And we project those biases out onto the others. I, I can get behind that a bit. Yeah. But I see you. Are you skeptical? Do you... No, I, I, I'm persuaded by the height argument, you know, and other people have made that. McGilchrist essentially made the same argument, Ian mm -hmm. McGilchrist. And... <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, Jill Bolte Taylor makes the same argument yeah. again. Um, so I, I am persuaded actually by that argument, but it, I'm not, I don't know where to go from there. I don't know what, what practice or educational system we should engage in if that in fact is the case. Um, because I don't think, I think, I think everyone is capable of, of letting go of a worldview and adopting another one and moving on, I think it's much harder for some people. And I think I, I think people who are insecure for good reason, like they're in poverty or they don't have a job, um, I think it's very, very hard and really almost impossible to let go of a worldview because it's all you've got. I think it's one thing for you know, a comfortable professor in a nice office at a research university to say these things and to 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 promote these things. It's quite another if you're, you know, you're economically disadvantaged or you're a racial minority or you're living in a ghetto and you've got nothing and your religious system or your or your political beliefs are all you have. You know, so I understand that and I think that is all true. But I still think particular value systems and particular political systems hurt people, regardless of how you got there or who's holding on to them 
or who's not. And that's what concerns me. I don't think this isn't an abstract game we're playing. We're playing with people's lives here. And um, so I think I think that the stakes are really high. Yeah, and it, it, to be, I think it needs to be said that you make this point in your book that um, just because I'm always asked that question when I'm talking about these things about um, consciousness and psychology yeah. and philosophy yeah. and you know all these various subjects that people eventually say, well, why, why the hell do I care? Why does it matter? And then th then you get into kind of the moral problems, saying like, well, you know, there, there's a certain moral framework, you know, and and I. You actually noted this, which I really liked. It's like, look, just because you have a particular worldview doesn't mean you're going to be more pleasant. I mean, there's all kinds of guru figures who've done some horrendous stuff. Right. And we're jumping ahead there because I want to, but I think that's important, and I want to maybe even um, circle back to that. Yeah. The other thing that's worth repeating is that, you know, just because some of these ideas or beliefs have been abused doesn't mean they're wrong. Right. A badly used idea is not the same as a bad idea. I underline that. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Because every every good idea has been abused and used for yeah. really nasty purposes. There's no such thing as a good idea that's only used for good things. It doesn't exist. So just because, you know, the truth or the, the goodness or the value of an idea does not depend on on who uses or abuses it, you know. It, it has its own, its own integrity, you know, up or down. You know, like, when talking to you, you have this really nice ability to, to do what I experience as a Gnostic flip. Uh -huh. You know, you're you're there's all those eh, that too, but also this. You know, and yeah. then there's, and it 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 prevents us from going into that kind of one-sided belief system. And right. it's refreshing to remember that kind of when we're when we're talking to each other, going back and forth, and constantly like batting on the other side. That's again the humanities. That's yeah. the training you get in the humanities, is to always question your assumptions. Yeah. You know, as I say in the book, don't believe in yourself. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Don't believe your beliefs. Yeah. Don't think your thoughts. Step out of them. Okay, then you can step back in them. That's fine. Yeah. You know, go back and forth. <laughs> you know, because if you go back and forth, you know, if you if you border cross to 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 speak in in some local terms here, you realize that actually the border is illusory. Yeah. There is no such thing, and. Um, there is no just one way of being and thinking. Yeah. So, what you did was, uh, and I, I, you and I even you you gave me this uh, cover. Whenever I was here last, you know, oh, and now I? it's great because I've got the book, and I, I, I'm happy. I'm I'm inflated because I have an uncorrected proof. All right. Pre-released, you know, you're. Uh, I'm. I'm happy about. But this. you destroyed it. You said you I, underlined it. I. Oh yeah. I. Uh, I went crazy in it. Um, yeah. You're not gonna get any money for that. Yeah. Well, that, no. I'm gonna get you to sign it. I'm gonna <laughs> put it on my desk. All right. All right. <laughs> so, um, what I what I when we were chatting initially about this book, one reason why I was so excited is because it's territory that, as somebody who is really educated in the humanities. Now, granted, I was in a psychology program, which is really, I had a. I had a potential flip in my early uh, career because I was going to go into neuroscience. And we were doing some really cool, um, in the laboratory at, at TCU, there's really great research on Parkinson's and um, stem, stem cell research. It was, talk about mind-blowing, it was blowing my mind. Um, but I went, from their perspective, a lighter route. You know, I went back to the psychotherapy. And I'm happy I did, you know. Um, 
but but I've experienced a number of these flips throughout my throughout my even the past fourteen years. Mm-hmm. Um, so when when we initially spoke, I was really excited about this thing coming out. Um, and the the essence of it was that there are a lot of scientists who, based upon their experiences, right, not not necessarily what's measured in a laboratory, almost never, yeah. But because of these various experiences, it challenges their worldview, or it doesn't challenge; it just flips it. They just they know instantly that, oops, that was <laughs> that's not it. <laughs> so what, put some skin on this bone. What do you mean? Well. What I mean by a flip isn't they think their way out of materialism. I mean something like a near-death experience or a psychedelic trip or a mystical experience um, invades their their being, and they know instantly and completely that it's not just a material world, that the material world is actually minded, and mind or consciousness is as fundamental as matter. And... That's what I call the flip. But they don't think their way to that. They can't prove that to you. They just know that from this direct experience of it, which is a subjective experience. It's not an objective scientific experiment in a laboratory. It's a mystical experience, essentially, that that fundamentally changes them. And I, I think it needs to be said here that the three questions that, certainly baffled me when I first read them. Um, the core questions we have not answered. What is matter? What is consciousness? And how does living, livingness, how's that created from dead matter? Right, so these, these three things, you go, wait a second. Like there are, talk about worldviews. There are a lot of assumptions that people are like, no, wait, we know what matter is. No. No, we don't. We don't. <laughs> so talk about that a bit. Well, the fundamental question that I think is on the horizon of, 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 of at least thinking in the, the, the academy now is what is matter, what is mind, and how are they related? And the problem is we don't know what matter or mind is, so how in the <laughs> hell are we going to decide how they're related, right? That, that's the real question. And what I do in the book, as you know, is I go through these five options that people are like moving toward to try to figure out figure out this mind matter relationship and but they all all of these five solutions involve fundamentally changing what matter is or what mind is so that they have some deeper connection so when you start investigating this you hear people talking about newtonian Uh uh you know and uh, darwinian right you know so can you speak to a couple of those core assumptions in materialist well, so so when we speak of a Newtonian world, we're basically talking about little bits of matter bouncing around in three-dimensional space and bouncing off one another. It's it's the pool table model of of the world. It's what you and I were probably trained in in, in grade school and high school. Remember the atom sure. with the little balls that were, you know, ro- okay, there is no such thing. <laughs> Those don't exist, sorry. But that that's the Newtonian imagination, these little balls moving around in, in three-dimensional space, you know? And, and of course, Newton, you know, was, was the genius that, that gave us the basic laws of physics and, and motion of, of large objects in space. It's how we figured out how the, you know, the planets and everything else move. That's how we went to the moon and back. It works really well. But it's raw. It's just not adequate when you get down below a certain material level. 
And um, this is why, you know, quantum mechanics is so important, even for people who don't understand it, like myself or yourself. It right. fundamentally changes how we think of material reality. And as I tried to point out in the book, the people who created quantum mechanics in the early 20th century all felt, well, not all, but most of them felt that it carried profound philosophical implications. Hmm. And they wrote about those implications. And they turned often to mystical literature to talk about what quantum reality is like. That wasn't invented in the 1960s or 70s. People were doing that in the 20s and 30s, the people who founded and created quantum mechanics. So this is a revolution in, 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 our, in our Western scientific worldview that has essentially pulled the rug out from under materialism as it existed in the 19th century. There is no materialism. Materialism's a myth. You know, a myth not in the sense of an untruth, but in the sense of a story that's so fundamental it goes unquestioned until, of course, it's questioned. And um, this is essentially what quantum mechanics did, is it pulled that, that rug out from under us and, um, you know, basically said, well, there really are no hard balls of, there are no hard bits of matter bouncing around or spinning around or orbiting around. It's, it's wave functions. It's smears of possibility. And oddly, we don't know where the quantum particle is until we choose to see it or measure it. So there's something to do with consciousness now, something to do with observation that somehow, to use their language, collapses the wave function and turns the, the statistical smear into an actual particle. Okay, that, that, that's weird. How, how does that work, you know? And, of course, they've been struggling with that for 100 years now because it fundamentally makes no sense. But it does suggest that somehow mind and matter are related in ways that we couldn't even imagine in the 19th century. Okay, so that's that's kind of what, you know, the chapter um, three, chapter three, I guess it is, or chapter four, yes, no, chapter three, chapter three is about, mm -hmm. is that revolution in how we look at, at the material world and how then people are starting to think about the relationship of mind to that, that new world that we live in. But what's What's extraordinary, John, is we don't, of course, live in a quantum world in our imaginations. We live in a Newtonian world still. We still think of everything bouncing around in three-dimensional space. We imagine that everything works like this desk that you pointed to earlier. Yeah. Um, and, of course, it does on this level of our senses and the level of our, our daily lives, but it's not true you know, below or above that level. It's just not true. It is not true. This desk is mostly space, you know, and it's it's actually, you know, waves of po possibility, waves of probability. It's not it's not tiny little hard pieces of stuff. Yeah, tough to grasp. It's impossible yeah. to grasp yeah. because our imaginations evolved to you know kill things and have sex with each other and you know. <laughs> reproduce and, and adapt and survive. It did not our imaginations did not evolve to figure out the quantum realm. Yeah. So what that where that leaves us is is that our imaginations and our thinking is simply not up 
to understanding the reality in which we are embedded and of which we are expressions. And so I think that's where you know a lot of these this this humility comes from is again beware of certainties beware of of knowing what you think you know even about this desk. Well, that brings you to the psychologist, because um, if we there is there is something about having a I, I guess because we haven't run this experiment completely, but having an idea of the world and reality that um, that's beyond that. I mean, we just don't have any idea how to be in reality without some of those fundamental assumptions. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know. And I, it's, it's difficult not to venture into thinking about mental illness as it's framed. You know, you talked earlier about you know, what is what is included into the particular culture and that therefore creates uh, something's kicked out outside of that particular worldview and because we just don't understand it and so the culture has no idea what to do with it and a lot of times you think about you know what we call hallucinations or um, some of these wild stories that people say and rather than investigating we just banish it you know it's uncomfortable yeah one of the things I suggest in the book I don't pursue because I don't feel adequate to it is I actually think a lot of paranormal phenomena are essentially quantum effects scaled up into this world. You know, that's that's been one of the debates in quantum mechanics is whether quantum effects are all blurred out or smeared out as you move up into mm-hmm. into this. But there's more and more thinking now that actually not all quantum effects are smeared out that you can get quantum effects in this world as well. And I think if you look at things like precognition or clairvoyance or visions of the death of loved ones or mothers knowing about their children in danger, I mean, it looks a lot like we're entangled in in ways that that at least as a metaphor look look quantum. You know, I don't know if it's literally or physically quantum, but it sure looks that way. Um, so I think that that's one one point i think the other is you know why i think the newtonian quantum thing is so interesting is this is very similar to the division you get in mystical literature between conventional reality and ultimate reality and the argument has long been in a lot of these systems that yeah we live in this conventional reality but it's not actually what's really there ultimate reality is only accessible in particular altered states of consciousness and it's essentially all one it's 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 impersonal it's it's cosmic you know it's it's divine it's whatever language you want conventional reality is you know john and jeff sitting in a room mm-hmm. across from each other in a desk it's it's not divine it's not one it's not cosmic you know so there are there are levels of reality in these sophisticated systems that speak i think not directly or literally, but can speak anagogically or metaphorically to what you see in this Newtonian quantum split. And this has been a challenge in physics for a century now, how to take, you know, something like Einstein's uh, relativity theory and quantum mechanics and put them together. They don't go together. They seem to be talking about completely different things. Um, so I, I just think that's the this is an old old challenge we've we've had. We're not we're not we're not going to solve it tomorrow. Well, we're back to that 
and I, you know, this this thread is, I think I probably say this every episode now, duality. Yeah. And th- there's just something. I, if we can back up from all of it, there tends to be a dual structure. At least that's what we can see, what we tend to see. I but mean, we, yeah, but that's because we split it. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. I mean, we, just, just having an ego means... You've split a form of subjectivity off of the world, off of the universe. So of course, it's dual. You're because you're the, you're the engine of dualism. You, you exist only because you've created this other. You know, I, I mean, I'm just I'm I'm speaking speculatively, but mm-hmm. of course, the world's dual. If you're looking at it as a person, it has to be dual, right? If it were not dual, you wouldn't be a person, right? So by the nature of me becoming a human being, socialized in the way that I am. Socialized in any way. I, sure, yeah. yeah. And I will, I will, because that's the lens through which I see myself and my world, I'm going to see that in everything. But I just mean, I just mean coming into consciousness as an infant and realizing I'm not my blanket or I'm not my mother, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a dualism being created from the first days of our existence outside the womb, right? Just becoming a sub, becoming, becoming a subject means we're not the objects. Yeah. That subject-object split is 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 at the very core of becoming aware and becoming a person. I say, <laughs> my I said this recently. The talk was like, you know, my daughter really started to. She's in it right now. She's two, and she's uh, she's mine and no. Uh-huh. You know, differentiation. There right? you go. You know, kind of <laughs> mine. No, do that, Daddy. Uh, so I'm, I'm in the world. She's asserting the, uh, her a, ego. A splitter, yeah. She's creating, he's splitting off. Yeah, that's right. So then, of course, our educational system is going to be split like this. But because of this nature, because of, because of this fact, this idea, in the, in the sciences, there are splits. In the humanities, there are splits. In mystical literature, there's splits. You know, certainly between humanities and in the hemispheres of our brain, there are splits. Uh, but you're, you and I have connected before on, and you know, you tell me where you want to go next. I, I think maybe into the five, kind of answers. You know the, um, but I certainly want to talk about dual aspect. Yeah. Monism. Yeah. That's one of my favorites. Okay. Um, how'd you come to a lot of this stuff? The kind of your, y- the answers to the new ideas, the new myths that can, uh, that can help us. So this is why I have so much. I'm so optimistic. I I came to this material through hanging out with physicists <laughs> and and neuroscientists. No, seriously. I when I talk about physics or neuroscience, I'm not speaking as a physicist or a neuroscience scientist. I'm speaking because I've spent months, literally months, sitting in rooms with dozens and dozens of physicists and neuroscientists, and they. They've taught me what I know about these things, and these are also people who have flipped, you know. So I, I just have a tremendous amount of faith in, in uh, intellectuals, and in particular in in these physicists and, and neuroscientists because they're they're honest about what they know and what they don't know, and. Um, they're trying to develop new models, you know, to move beyond this dualism that you're, you were speaking about earlier. 
all the dual aspect monism stuff I learned from Harold Ottman Spocker, who's a, mm-hmm. you know, a quantum theorist in in Zurich, and Harold's pretty much taught me everything I know about that. Um, so you know, I listen to scientists, and again, this is part of the flip. So scientists again are really really fascinating people. They're not these monolithic things that we imagine them to be in the culture. They're, they're complex. And uh, a lot of them do inhabit these worldviews that we're talking about. So uh, let's go through them. Okay. Right. You did, uh, yeah, here. Well, the first one's panpsychism. Right. So, so here's the, let's start with the problem. The problem is what is the relationship between mind and matter? Or how do you get mind out of dead matter? How do you get life out of dead matter, right? That's the issue. The first answer is what we call panpsychism. And panpsychism solves the problem by essentially saying all matter is already minded in some ways. So you all the way down to a quantum particle, uh, a, a quantum particle has some basic sense of of consciousness or awareness. Not like you or I have, but it's it's really fundamental. And as matter builds up and organizes and becomes more and more complex, the forms of consciousness that that organism can exhibit become more and more complex until you get to something like, you know, you or I sitting here and we have trillions and trillions of connections in our brains and so we can have a conversation like this in a pretty sophisticated way that an amoeba uh, or a worm couldn't possibly have Mm -hmm. because they don't have the the neuronal organization that we have. Okay? So that's panpsychism. Everything's conscious all the way down, so you never have to explain how consciousness comes out of dead matter because there's no such thing as dead matter. It's all, it's all conscious matter all the way down. The problem with that is you still have what's called a combinative problem. You still really can't explain how you get to basically little things with zero consciousness or very little all the way up to you and me. I mean, at what magic moment does it pop into, you know, this 3D movie we're in? Mm-hmm. You, so you still have that issue. You still have that problem. Um, the, the other solution on the other far end of the spectrum is idealism. And this, of course, is the position that there's only mind and that matter is some kind of expression or, or emanation of mind. And, uh, that, that mind radiates itself in mathematical structures that we know as matter and, and the physical world, but really it's all ultimately mind. Okay? The problem with that is <laughs> it doesn't make any sense intuitively to us, but it's also based on experiences that are very rare. Um, I mean, people do have these experiences. Bernardo Castrop, who argues this very rigorously, has had these experiences and is arguing from those sorts of experiences. But it's hard for us to imagine that, you know, from where we normally sit. Um, Then in the middle, you have dual aspect monism. You have what I call quantum mind. And then you have, I think, cosmopsychism or something, cosmotheism. Cosmopsychism. Yeah, I'll find all this. Yeah. Um, what do you? Quantum, what are those? Quantum mind. Um, 
cosmopsychism. So yeah. I, I just to, to treat those pretty quickly because I think what you want to talk about is dual aspect monism. Qu uh, cosmic psychism is basically the position that the entire universe is a big brain, and that um, all of the galaxies and all of the the, the, the certainly the, the stars and the solar systems. If you look at the universe as a whole, it it does actually look like a brain. It looks mm -hmm. like a it looks like neurons. Uh, and in this view, uh, it's all conscious. It's all alive. The universe is alive, and we're just living in some, you know, microscopic, you know, little point in it. Um, but there, you don't have to explain the mind matter split because everything, again, it's it's, it's essentially a form of panpsychism. Everything is is already conscious and it's already alive, and and things just look dead to us because we lack the scale. Right. I mean, if you were inside John's brain and you were uh, a microscopic, you know, camera and you were looking at a cell or something, it would not look terribly impressive. I mean, it would look dead, frankly, or or not as alive as John is. Right. But if you scale up and you pop outside John, you're like, oh, my God, he's alive, mm -hmm. you know. So everything in him is alive. And that's kind of how cosmopsychism thinks. It's everything in the universe is is alive because it's it's a single organism essentially. Um, that's actually Philip Goff makes this case pretty seriously. He's a philosopher of mind, but it's actually an old old religious idea. Uh, we call it cosmotheism. You know, it's that essentially the universe is is a god. Yeah, that I mean that's familiar to me from yeah, the, the it, Jungian tradition. Yeah, it's not it's 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 a traditional idea. It's yeah. not it's not an and panpsychism is really traditional. I mean, they, they like to call it panpsychism, but it's, you know, we used to call this animism. You know, we used to call, there are other, there are other words. It's probably the oldest and most global religious idea on the planet, actually, that everything is alive. That's the shamanic yeah. way of, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Sure. But you know, uh, where does Aldous Huxley, because you talk about the filter theory a lot, and does that, nestle into any of these or where does that so, fit not very well i mean it's really another line of thinking the filter theory really tends towards a kind of dualism i think where consciousness is fundamental to the cosmos but is also somehow transcendent to certainly the body and the brain um you know it essentially says that the body brain is a, a filter or reducer or translator of some form of consciousness that is dis distributed everywhere in the universe, like gravity or force or something. Um, so, you know, it can be read in different ways. Mm -hmm. You can read that as cosmopsychism if you want. You can read that as a form of theism, you know, or, or dualism if you want to, I suppose. Um, but the dual aspect theory is... Is not none of those. Right, and it, it's so attractive to me because it... It's what Jung thought. Yeah, Jung worked a... Well, yeah, and Pauli, we can certainly yeah. get into that. But the I wrote in the notes somewhere about uh, the tension of opposites. You know, so I, Jung was talking a lot about, thinking a lot about duality and how to resolve the duality. And he got into this tension where this something third comes out. It's where... Um, they did this design, right, of the kind of dual aspect structure. So speak about that for a bit. Well, okay, so there are different forms of dual aspect monism, but the one that's, I, you know, I think 
certainly that I talk the most about in the book is this notion that ultimate reality is neither mental nor material. It's it's some it's not even a thing. You know, it's Jung called it the unus mundus, mm-hmm. the the one world. And again, it's not material and it's not mental or if you pr- prefer it's both mental and material. It has characteristics of both. When it evolves into an organism like John Price, it splits the mental and the material into two dimensions to create this person or this ego that then splits that unus mundus into a mental and a material dimension. And so this is why it's called dual aspect monism, because epistemologically speaking, in other words, in our experience, Mm -hmm. the world is in fact two. It's mental and it's material. But ontologically speaking, deep down, it's actually not. It's it's a monism. It's one thing or one world below all of this. But in our experience that splits that one world into two dimensions, it it appears as two. And that's why it's called dual aspect monism. And we are the... Uh, we're the splitter. We're the splitter. And I think the... I've been thinking about this a lot. I just... At a talk recently, I was thinking about our splitting, you know, our sensory system is a splitter. Yeah. Let me say one more thing, John, one more thing. So take synchronicity, something, you know, dear to every Jungian's heart. So if you imagine the world split into a mental and material domain, a synchronicity is not something in the material realm influencing something in the mental realm. It's something underneath that's manifesting in both realms at once. Hmm. So it's it's speaking back to this unus mundus. So there's no causal, there's no cause from physical event to mental event, right. nor is there a cause from mental event to physical event, but they're both emerging simultaneously or together from this deeper one world. Like I didn't will that person to call me. No. You know, yeah. 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 Here, people... People really write that stuff off. This uh, the idea of it's uh, it's misunderstood, but people write it off a lot. Um, well, they think it's they think it's they're mis well. There are lots of reasons to write it off, <laughs> but one is is they're imagining some causal arrow mm-hmm. right. from the material to the mental or the mental to the material when there is no such causal error, arrow in this model. I just like the the idea that we don't really know. You know, I I think that. When we can, part of the part of the pleasure is in a sen- having a sense of discovery and, like approaching the horizon. You know, you're not going to get there, but you, you got to you can go head that way. You know, well, in this model, as an ego, or a, you can't know, right? Because you're splitting something that's not in fact split. <laughs> Your very existence presumes you don't know. Yeah. That's why in mystical literature, when you do know, you don't exist anymore. Yeah. You're not there. So you get all these paradoxes about no self and the face you had before you were born and you know on and on and on. Those are all make total sense if you think about this in this kind of dual aspect monistic way. Yeah, it's it's been the... I mean, I didn't have that language until um, even a few years ago. But considering I read Jung, I, it's one reason why it clicked, I guess, but... 
um, I've, I've really enjoyed having that container to try to think about reality in that way. It's helpful, which gets us to something important, um, unless you have something you want to jump into. Well, I think, I don't know where we are in time. We got 10 minutes. Okay, good. I think we probably want to move into the political and ethical. That's where I wanted to go. Yeah, yeah. good. Yeah. So, uh, so, so what? <laughs> well, our, okay. Uh, so these are people say. Yeah, these are pretty abstract, speculative ideas for sure. But there is a so what, because we've organized all of our political lives and our social lives essentially around a Newtonian logic that we are different from each other and we're competing for the same resources. And there's something called the nation state that is fundamentally different from every other nation state. So we've essentially created a, a whole world system based on conflict and competition, based on these little bits of matter bouncing around in three-dimensional space. That's what we've done. Um, but none of that, in fact, is true deep down. What if we switched our imaginal framework into a quantum framework in which everything is one deep down and we're all local expressions of some single world deep down physically not just not just in moral high talk right. but literally physically true we are all expressions of one world and all of our religious identities all of our political identities, all of our national identities are, are simply constructs. They're historical fictions that we tell ourselves, but none of them, in fact, are true. Okay, if we make that fundamental shift, and that's as fundamental as it gets, we lose all sorts of bases to engage in organized violence and to build walls um, and to hurt people. You know, we, we lose the moral foundation of our acts of violence and exclusion. Um, it doesn't, and it doesn't mean we, we have to cease to be politically wise or we can't have rules or we can't have laws or something, but it means we'll handle those laws and handle those rules in fundamentally different ways. Yeah. Um, so what I do in the last chapter, which is about the politics of the flip, is I talk about consciousness and how all human beings inhabit really the same form of consciousness, and that if we acknowledge that, then we can see that all of our identities are built on these local fictions and are not actually fundamental to the species as a whole. And that would result in entirely different ethics and entirely different politics, I think, than we have today. Don't you run into the problem of having the ego split, for example, and that the very nature of that ego splitting is, is creates the mind? Again, it's how you hold the ego. It's not that you won't have an ego in, the, in these new systems. It's that you will hold the ego in a fundamentally different way than, than you— it doesn't mean you can't have a language or that you can't have a religious identity or that you can't belong to a nation state. It means that you recognize that all of those things are relative and historically constructed and they're not really what a human being is deep down. It, it, it changes. It, it, the orientation changes. 
foreground becomes background, background becomes foreground. So I'm not, I'm not saying I'm an American. I'm a, I'm a human being. Well, you are an American, but you, before you're an American, you're a human being. Yeah. You know, so I tell this story of Vice President Pence, who during the election, before, of course, he was vice president, said something like, um, I'm, a, I'm a, an American, I'm a Republican, and I'm a Christian. And he said something like, I'm first of all a Christian, and then I'm an American, and then I'm a Republican. And I said, well, what he actually never said is that actually before all of those things, he's a human being. All of those are identities that were constructed by language and child-rearing and culture. None of them are permanent. None of them are universal. They're all fictions, essentially. Um, and what he really is deep down is a human being like the rest of us. Um, so that's, that's, again, how, how are you a Christian or how are you a Republican or how are you an American? You know, I think that that's what would fundamentally change if we took this flip and and um, extended it through the whole culture, which I you know I don't see us doing anytime soon. By the way, is anybody getting close? No. Yeah. No, I think this is. But you know, nobody lived in a democracy either a thousand years ago, uh, the way we think of democracy. So things do change mm -hmm. in surprising ways. Um. Nobody knew that uh, the Earth revolves around the sun, or very you know, very few people did. But now everybody assumes as much. So I mean, things things shift. Yeah. Sometimes surprisingly fast. Yeah, because they need to. And I think the other thing, the other the other issue I address in that last chapter is the environment. Mm -hmm. And I think the environmental crisis and climate change is very much a function of this Newtonian world we were speaking of earlier of us existing separate from the natural world, which I think is a complete fiction. Yeah. And, you know, basically through our burning of carbon and our polluting, we're, we're shitting in our own living room. Mm -hmm. And it's only a matter of time before we can't live in that living room anymore. We are that living room. We are expressions of the natural world. The natural world is us. So when we pollute, we pollute ourselves. And that, again, is this flip, you know, that I'm trying to articulate here, that it fundamentally changes, I think, how we behave and what we value and what we don't value. Yeah, it's a worthy endeavor, Jeff. It's a hopeless endeavor, but it's still worth doing. Yeah, you know, I mean, somebody needs to imagine these things. And it's not, it's, the point of this book isn't, it's not Jeff imagining these things. This is a really a report, I think, on the state of knowledge in the humanities and the sciences. It's where I think a lot of people are. And it's, I think it's where we're beginning to imagine. We're beginning to move in this direction. But I'd really stress the we. This isn't, this isn't about me. This is about where a lot of scientists and a lot of humanists and a lot of concerned people are moving. Good. Good for you. I highly recommend the book. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks a lot, man. You bet. Sadness sits, can't stop what's being